2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctor or candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at BFL in Switzerland, and will be a host today. Today, we'll be talking to Bradley Sherman about his new book, The Super Age, Decoding Our Demographic Destiny. A demographic futurist explains the coming super age, when there will be more people older than 65 than those under the age of 18, and explores what it could mean for our collective future. If we aren't prepared for the changes to come, Schurmer warns, we face economic stagnation, increased isolation of at-risk populations, and accelerated decline of rural communities. Instead, we can plan now how to harness the benefits of the super age extended and healthier lives, more generational cooperation at work and at home, and new markets
1: and products to explore.
2: Well, Bradley, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: So as we're living through the unprecedented times of the global pandemic, I was wondering if you could start by reflecting on how has it affected you and your work and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from this
1: experience. Wow, what a question to start with. Um, the pandemic has affected literally every part of my life and every part of my work. As you know, I'm, I'm in demographics. So I watch the way populations grow, contract, age. Um, and all of this has brought everything together in a way that is almost surreal. We make projections in this demographic work that looks out 5, 10, 15 years. And in many ways, a lot of the trends that we expected to happen because of projected population declines, population aging, that would affect the workforce, that could affect the supply chain, that could affect the way in which our communities grow and the way individuals engage with one another well, that'll happen in two years versus 10 or 15 or even 20. So it's almost as though somebody took some steroids or speed and shot them into the arm of the world and pushed us forward in ways that, quite frankly, we're just starting to understand. The workforce has changed fundamentally forever our communities have changed fundamentally forever. I think our healthcare systems are, are in an evolution right now that is really hard to grasp at this point. Individuals of all ages are online and engaged digitally now, and that wasn't the case before the pandemic. So yeah, it's affected literally every part of, of what I do and how I do it.
2: And how did you find adjusting to, to this online world?
1: Well, for me, it was it was relatively seamless. I'm personally ahead of the curve, I think, when it comes to utilizing technology. The big question mark, and, and I talk about this in my book, um, was how older populations would adjust. Because historically, there is a lag between the time in which early adopters who are you know traditionally younger people uh, or people with high incomes take on technology and the time it takes for older populations or lower income populations to take up technology what we saw with covid i think i know was that individuals had no choice but to get online They had to make a decision whether or not to sink or swim, and sinking meant becoming isolated, not being able to connect with friends or family members because it was too, Mm -hmm. there was too much risk in doing it in person. I think for me personally, one of the saddest parts of the pandemic is missing that human connection. I. I I traveled the world before this on a regular basis. I built my business and my relationships on in-person contact. And at the onset of the pandemic, I can honestly say I felt loss. I felt mourning for a world that I loved and a way of business that I really enjoyed. But with any great period of transformation, any great disruption, new opportunities emerge. And I have been humbled. Uh, by the way in which um, I've learned and I've been taught new technologies and ways to engage digitally, I can say without any hesitation or reservation that this opportunity to see the world in a different space, in a digital space, has put me in touch with people that I would have never come in contact with before. So when I look at like the net benefits or the net costs of the pandemic, on the whole, it's been very good because I haven't I haven't lost those soft skills of engaging with folks. I've gained new digital skills of engaging um, whether it be on platforms like LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook um, or even Zoom. these things I like doing now. Um, and they're things that I would say that I was maybe a little averse to before the pandemic.
2: Excellent. So you've mentioned already that you are in demographics. So can you tell us more about yourself?
1: Sure. I am uh, in demographics, as you said. Um, My business is really looking at the intersection of two megatrends. One is decreased birth rates, and the second is increased longevity, or the the number of years that we live. And these two different trends, these are megatrends, are coming together to form a super mega trend, uh, which is called population aging. And while I don't really love the term population aging, it is the term that um, demographers, the UN has given to this shift in our populations, from when we move to be relatively young populations in terms of average age, to becoming relatively older populations in terms of age. I've spent my entire career in this space. I actually became aware of it when I was still in university. I would be traveling between my home city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and my adopted city of Washington, D.C., where I was at American University, and I would notice that as I drove to the midpoint of this journey, which is only four or five hours depending on traffic, that the population in the center of Pennsylvania, my home state, would be whiter, older, poorer, and more likely to be engaged in work um, and and working in jobs that I thought were historically put aside for teenagers, for young people, jobs like pumping gas or cleaning bathrooms or working in fast food, and the people that were doing these jobs in this town of Breezewood, which is the center point on my journey, were men and women well into their 70s and sometimes into their 80s. And I thought to myself, this doesn't make any sense. My, my grandparents, who are you know just two and a half hours from here, are ensconced in a, in a relatively comfortable retirement. They're living in a nice retirement community. And they didn't have a lot of money um, when they were adults. Uh, my grandfather was a coal miner who later you know, installed elevators. And my grandmother was an elementary school teacher. They didn't have money. They didn't have wealth. But for some reason, they were able to secure retirement. And these folks in central Pennsylvania were not. So I scratched on this. And, I, and I, whenever I get my, my head into something, I, I have a hard time letting it go. And I really wanted to understand what this meant. Was this something that was just facing central Pennsylvania, or was this something that was larger than there? Was this something that was larger than what I was seeing? Was this something larger than the United States and perhaps something that was affecting the world? And it became crystal clear to me in a very short period of time that population aging, was something that was happening virtually everywhere and affecting virtually everyone. So I went about focusing my career and my work on understanding what was contributing to population change, the historical foundations for it, our attitudes towards older people and how they've evolved or devolved, depending on your point of view. And what these larger shifts mean as we become an older society in terms of average age for our social and economic norms. And what I found was that aging is virtually happening everywhere. There were countries that were ahead of the game countries like Japan, uh, Germany, Italy. Um, but they've already entered into this new period of humanity that that I call the super age. It's borrowed from a UN definition of populations where At least 20%, one out of five people within a society are over the age of 65. Well, just a few years ago, the only countries in this club were Japan, Germany, and Italy. And within the next um, nine years, tops, closer to eight years now, there'll be 35 different nations. And these represent some of the largest economies in the world. And it's not just happening in the largest and most developed uh, economies either. Um, It's happening in smaller ones too, places that you wouldn't necessarily expect, places like Cuba and Georgia, uh, places like Vietnam, if you can believe that. And because it's happening everywhere and to everyone, it is quite possibly the single greatest issue affecting our society today perhaps outside of climate change, and virtually no one is talking about it. So that's really why I fell in love with the subject more than anything else, is because it was underfoot and everywhere and no one was paying attention.
2: And what would you say to our younger listeners and early career researchers?
1: About the larger demographic change? I think that this is something that they cannot avoid. Um, it will affect them from now until the time they die. Society historically has been predicated on growth. It hasn't been large amounts of growth, but it has been predicated on growth. We solved for some of society's greatest ills, that being an incredibly high mortality rate for infants and youth, sometime during the second industrial revolution. And we've continued making it a priority today. So I talked about my grandparents when we started this conversation today. My grandfather was born in 1914. So not that long ago, uh, just over 100 years. When he was born, and he was born into poverty. So these are just average numbers. These include the, the, the death rates for the rich too. He had a one out of, th- one out of four chance of making it through his first birthday a one out of three chance of making it to his fifth birthday and a one out of two chance of making it into adulthood over the course of the last century or so we have made incredible advancements as humans. We have focused on disease transmission, vaccines, food safety, uh, guaranteeing elementary education for children, taking them out of factories All of these contribute to lowering the mortality rates. Well, when all of the scientific innovation was happening, we hadn't quite caught up with our social practices. So let's assume my grandfather was born in a house of uh, one of eight children. Based on statistics, only four of them would have survived prior to these innovations. All eight of them made it to adulthood. So from about the turn of the century, around 1900 or so, to around 2000 or so, our population, our global population roughly doubled. So we went from about 2 billion people to about 8 billion people today. Our population just went crazy. Now, what were the effects of this? Well, there are plenty of them. I mean, obviously, we're dealing with the environmental effects today, these are things that virtually everyone is talking about, how the planet cannot sustain this many people. But it also created a unique labor environment where there was just an abundance of people to do jobs. So the value of labor decreased quite substantially. Um, this created, I think, kind of that the classic model of cheap labor. So businesses could find cheap labor at home first, then they could find cheap labor abroad. So for people who are you know, roughly in my age, Generation X, I was born in 1977, we grew up in a world with relatively flat wages. But for young people, hmm, that's a different story, especially for the youngest young. They're entering an environment that looks a lot more like the end of the Second World War um, than five years ago in this country, because a significant number of older people have left the workforce either because of choice or because they were made redundant. And that has created almost an artificial shortage of labor. Um, So their prospects look really good right now, like incredible. So you're seeing this emergence for young people in particular, um, almost a a golden era for workers that's emerging. Now, most businesses will have to adapt very quickly if they're going to keep the lights on, if they want to be able to keep manufacturing, if they want to continue to grow. But the only way they can do that is if they compete and they're going to have to compete with salaries. They're going to have to compete with with uh, benefits. They're going to have to augment their workforce with artificial intelligence, machine learning. They're going to have to support their staff, uh, you know, revolutionary, right? Support their staff with things like flexible leave and caregiving leave so that people Um, You know, many of them who are female can actually help take care of their parents and their grandparents, um, and they're going to have to extend working lives. This model that we live in that was predicated on the ideas of Bismarck and Roosevelt and other great leaders that focused on building a national pension system where you could leave work around 65 or even younger, it's beyond outdated. People will simply have to work longer if we want to keep our economy afloat and if we want to keep social protections in place. But right now, this model where we're, we're leaving work around 60 to 65, it's just not sustainable. And if we do it, we bankrupt the prospects of future generations.
2: So your latest book is The Super Age, Decoding Our Demographic Destiny. And can you tell us how did you come to writing it?
1: Well, I, as I mentioned earlier, I've spent most of my career in the aging and longevity space, uh, first identifying these trends as a university student, and then going into work in the private not-for-profit sector. I started my career with an organization called Leading Age. At the time, it was known as the American Association of Homes and Services for the Aging. And this organization represented long-term care communities across the United States. Um, I spent about three years there. I was recruited then to go to AARP, which for your listeners who are not U.S.-based, is the largest membership organization in the world outside of the Catholic Church. And this organization is 38 million or so people um, all over the age of 50, And I worked there to build their global aging program, and this included work in research, which was one of my fortés, but also building strategic relationships with private sector businesses, as well as uh, government entities and you know multi government institutions. So places like the World Economic Forum, the OECD, are places where I did my work, and I focused on. Getting organizations and individuals to move away from this narrative of gloom and doom around growing older populations. See, I believe that there is great potential in this new period, but there's only great potential if we choose to change. And to make those adjustments, we do have to do things like look at. look at the pension systems look at the healthcare systems look at the way we work we have to address issues like ageism in particular we have to figure out things around the urban and rural divide we have to address core concerns around equity in gender in in race in in sexuality and sexual identity we have to address these pieces head on or we are heading for a collision course of calamity and I wanted to put this into a book that made sense, which allowed people to see the world as I see it, but more importantly, to see the world that's there right in front of them that they can't see right now. The funny thing about these demographics is when you talk about them, people immediately say, okay, old people, and they kind of laugh and they mock Mm -hmm. you for, for bringing up this subject like you're some kind of fool. But the reality is, a larger, older population, an increased lifespan, that affects literally every part of our lives as individuals. That affects me and you. So I challenge people: Okay, you you think this subject is funny? Fine. Go to a park, ideally in a city. Look at the parents of the children that are there. Just look around, and try to guess their ages. In most parks, especially in urban areas now, you'll see children who have parents that are as young as 16 or 17 or even 18 and as old as 60 plus. And they all have children that are the same age. That's because we're changing the way we live in ways that we would have never expected just 10, 20, or even 30 years ago. When I was born in 1977, if a woman had a baby at 40... People thought she was she had lost her mind. They thought it was a freak of nature. But today, a woman having her babe, a baby in her forties is quite commonplace. Certainly in in Western economies. In fact, women forty to forty nine are the fastest growing group of mothers in the United States. So this is just a fundamental shift in life. It's not just about there being more older people. It's about there being a shift in the way we do our lives, the way we do our work, the way we live in our homes and our communities, um, and the future of our our people.
2: So you mentioned this term super-age earlier, and can you describe maybe in a bit more detail what do you mean by (laughs) super-age?
1: So like I said, the the super-age is a technical definition from the United Nations. There are three stages to to an aging population. Um, And the last one is super aged. And a super aged society is when one out of five people are over the age of 65, um, 20% of the population. Um, It was always a very pejorative term, okay? It was always something that was negative because it's like suggesting to people that all lights are flashing red on the board you know, emergency, emergency, pension systems will collapse, healthcare systems will fall apart. Um, we won't have enough workers to do the jobs that need to be done. You know, there was this kind of panic that set in around that, 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 that terminology that was just so negative. And I thought to myself when putting this book together, um, let's turn that around. Because all these negative things happen if we simply do nothing. But if we do something, if we address these things head-on, we have a a once-in-a-century-plus opportunity to create a world that is more just, that is more equitable, that is more friendly to people of all ages. We have an opportunity to expand our economy, to improve inclusion. We have an opportunity to take design and consider it not as an exclusive thing, but something that is inclusive. There are so many opportunities that exist here for change. That's how we get to the super age. That's how we live in the super age. That's how we turn it from being a a period of dystopia to one that that can evoke dreams and opportunity. Dystopia, though, does exist uh, in this period already. And when we look at places like the countryside in virtually every Western economy, in virtually every developed economy, we can see what happens when um, demographics go unchecked, when population aging spirals out of control. Because following population aging comes depopulation. And um, I just spent the holidays in Italy and... In the Tuscany region, Italy is an early super-age country, as I've mentioned, and without tourists, it feels a bit dystopic there in the sense that the sheer number of people on the streets do not exist. Now, obviously, things are complicated with COVID right now, so take Italy out of the picture completely, go to the countryside in your home country. Do you see really strong local economies? Do you see strong local schools or healthcare systems? Are there financial institutions? Are there a bank or, or, or banks? Um, can you find um, access to retail? And the answer consistently is no. You know, Many of these rural communities are essentially canaries in the coal mine. And that's at the ch- a significant chapter of my book. Because if we don't watch out for these things and how demographic change affects um, these individual communities, things can spiral out of control quite quickly. In fact, there's a small town in my book that's refer- in Japan that's referred to the uh, Valley of the Dolls. And I think there's about 50 people left there now. And the average age has got to be around 60 years old. But in order to make the town feel like it used to, the folks that live there have, have made dolls, mannequins, scarecrows, depending on how you want to call them, um, out of the people that once lived there and have put them around the village. Mm. And it is weird. And it is a sign of things to come if we don't pay attention to the world around us. We can obviously slow some things with demographic change, but you really can't stop them. Um Many countries have tried at this point. So how do you mitigate the negative side of things and, um, supplement the good ones? That's what the book uh, I think is really exploring because all, all parts of business, all parts of civil society, the public sector and the private sector have a role here. Um, but we really need to embrace it, um, But in order to embrace it, we have to know it exists first, you know, and so few people, I think, see it. And that's the hope for this book is that it will open people's eyes to the world around them, what's happening and what the true possibilities are.
2: Oh, yeah, you hit the nail on the head uh, there, because demographics, they do underpin any sort of human activity, but we don't tend to think about it.
1: Yeah, and I and I think that's that's it's kind of a funny thing about humanity is that, um, we can't see the forest through the trees. And I, there's, I'm sure there's plenty of things we can blame for this. Uh, quite frankly, honestly, it feels as though the past decade has been lunging, or almost twenty years at this point now. If I'm being honest with myself, it feels as though we've lunged from one crisis to another, whether it be political or military or humanitarian or environmental it's always something so I think the average person really struggles with seeing the larger trends the larger pieces that are there they're right in front of you you shouldn't be able to miss them but nobody sees them because they're dealing with the present so I'm really hoping the super age allows people to take a breath and then a release And they can see the world that actually exists. And it's not a bad world. It's a good world. But it's one that they have to adjust to. And if you are a manufacturer of goods in particular, but also services, if you don't adapt to the change that's here, that's on its way, your competition will. And they will knock you out of your place. Period. This
0: episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: So what I understood is that you really need this fine balance uh, in the the societies for them to function uh, really well within the the specific uh, period of time. So I was wondering if you had some favorite examples throughout human history where there was maybe a big change in demographics that led to something? Well, I mean,
1: (sighs) we've never experienced anything quite like this. In fact, it's never happened in the world where there's been a population adjustment um, of this scale. The closest thing I can possibly point to is the last pandemic, um, um, which is more commonly referred to as the Spanish flu. There was such a loss of life during that period, it adjusted the life expectancy down substantially. Our current pandemic, at least in the United States, has, has altered our life expectancy downward by about two years. When a health event, which was also a demographic event, occurred – developed economies at the time began to address areas where there could be illness so that this the the flu outbreak was one part of it there was also tuberculosis there was a lot of different health related things that were happening that were damaging our demographics at the time so we focused on fixing the areas where we saw problems so during the last pandemic again this is just one example of where we shifted we started thinking differently about the bathroom because we assumed and rightly so that the bathroom is where a lot of disease transmission was happening. So the bathrooms that we have today, um, at least in, in the West, uh, white porcelain, white sinks, that was all developed roughly around that time period and continues today. Um, obviously there's some thinking around how to manage disease now to make us safer. Um, I think it won't be unusual for us to have temperature checks, um, going forward. I think mask wearing is, is starting to feel like it's ubiquitous now throughout the world. I think within office spaces, they'll have to consider ways to have, you know, at least negative air pressure systems or some way to, to bring fresh air in. But these adjustments are made essentially to protect people. And I do think we're entering into a period now, you know, two years into a pandemic and no clear end in sight where, you know, people are going to buy into making change so they can get back to some degree of normalcy. What that change looks like exactly, you know, I, it's hard to put my, my finger on that right now. Um, but I do think there is just a hyper focus right now, and I can see it for the foreseeable future. Uh, on on managing disease transmission as much as possible.
2: And uh, talking about the future, so your job title is also quite awesome, The Demographic Futurist. So can you explain what does that mean and what do you do within this role?
1: So I, as a demographic futurist, I work with big companies, um, some startups mm-hmm. Um, financial institutions, insurance companies, products and service manufacturers, to help them understand what demographics mean for their business. And the nice thing about demographics is that we are really, really good in the West, at least at capturing data on populations. Like, we are really good at. And it's one of the most amazing things that our governments do is count people and get their demographic data neatly lined up in the U.S. It happens every ten years. The data is reliable, and we can we can build models from it. Um, but it's more for my work. It's more than just looking at the models. It's looking at some other factors within certain sectors, the employability, the certain age of certain types of workers yada, yada, yada. So within a business, you know, I can take a look at a business and assess where they're going to have pain points with their workforce. If I'm taking a look at average worker ages, I can take a look at larger industry trends based on, you know, you know, for example, the number of nurses that are coming out of school versus the number of nurses that are a certain age and make relative predictions on where there might be scarcity of talent. Um, but for the larger economic piece, you know what what businesses should and should and should be making. Um, we have those numbers in front of us right now. You know the the largest generation, with the exception of the millennials, the boomers are are now in, for the most part, retirement or some type of retirement. Um, and um, I think they 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 nine out of ten of them have survived since birth. So. This is a population that's going to demand um, marketplace changes. They're going to want to stay involved in work. And in fact, many employers are going to need to keep them involved as long as they can. So we help build organizations what we call super-age strategies. And these super-age strategies sit on a three-legged stool. So you have to get first your um, human resources and workplace strategy um, in line. You have to make sure that you understand the fact that the workforce will naturally be older and your workforce should be older, especially because you're going to want to build in empathy and expertise from a diverse age group of people. So you're going to want your your whippersnapper, you know, Gen Zers who are strappy and hungry to work, but you're also going to want the most senior members, you know, people that are in the silent generation even included in your workforce. And we know that these folks are valuable. I mean, the Queen of England is a silent generation member. The president of the United States is in the silent generation. They're leading countries, they're leading nations. Of course they can they can play an active role in the in the economy. There are companies that have taken this on too, and I'll, and I'll talk a bit about that in a moment. But the second piece is once you have these people in your workforce, you have to incorporate them in the innovation and design of your products. Because when you take their considerations into account, you can build products and services that are more inclusive and can be used for more people. It sounds so simple, but it's revolutionary for a lot of these companies. And here's the one thing, the one thing that we know. None of us know who are working age right now what it is to be old. We all know what it means to be young. We can remember being teenagers. We can remember being kids. We can remember being in our 20s. But none of us know what, it's, what it is to be old. We've never lived that experience. So in what world can we possibly imagine that we can build products and services for older people that work. The audacity of that has never been lost on me. And the third part is marketing and communications. We don't know how to talk to older people because we talk to them either like they're children or like they're not really valuable members of society. We we love to throw around the term old and senior, um, and they're really not appropriate terms at all. Because most of these people are as active or more active than 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 people our age or younger or even a little older, they've got more money, they're willing to spend it, um, and we have we have this, I don't know, I, unreasonable idea that we can just say, "Hey, older people, you should buy this." Well, that's crazy. Like, I don't buy something just because I'm middle aged. I buy something because I like it. So companies should be focused on building products and services that are inclusive and then marketed as something that most people can use and that can keep people connected to society in ways that they maybe can't be right now. And I mention this because, you know, my own dad, you know, when he suffered from a stroke a couple years ago, he bought into a product that allowed him to have greater mobility, first buying a Porsche Macan. And then buying a a, a Tesla S class because they allowed him to drive with more um, with more freedom and more security. And I mentioned Porsche in particular because Porsche is one of the few companies in the world that has designed its workplace around ergonomics that are inclusive of people of all ages. Now, you may say, oh, well, they're just trying to keep people who are older working. No, they're actually trying to extend working lives. You know, working in a factory is really hard on the human body. So if they're able to reduce that repetition, reduce that strain on young people, they could extend their working lives dramatically. But in the short term, what Porsche was able to do is get men and women who are working on the floor staying employed for an extra 5, 10, or 15 years. Well, all of a sudden now, Porsche has you know, young men and women who are you know, in their late teens working alongside men and women who are in their early to late 60s. Well, all of a sudden, these young men and women are able to see some of the challenges, hear some of the concerns of their older coworkers, and they're able to build those concerns into the design. So, you know, and this is not just exclusive to Porsche, this is exclusive to, you know, all auto manufacturers, things like rear view cameras, things like push button start, you know, these are all innovations that have in many ways come from um, this inclusion of older workers in the workplace, and the empathy that grows amongst younger peoples to these populations, because they're working uh, hand in hand side by side.
2: Yes, for sure. That's super interesting. So going forwards, all the businesses will have to account for their uh, demographics of their workforce and trying to really make it uh, and both uh, comfortable for them, but also that will uh, result in better even yield uh, uh, of the uh, of whichever uh, uh, sector they're in.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just the business case to me is so crystal clear. But we've, we've, we've lived through a century in which ageism, which is this, you know, negative bias against older people, has been allowed to flourish. Um, and really, it has gotten out of control. You know, we, we have little to no tolerance for racism anymore. We have little to no tolerance for sexism homophobia, transphobia, but for some reason, it's okay to make fun of somebody because of their age. And because of that, we make these folks, we, we take away their license. We, we remove humanity from them. We, we, we disenfranchise them in ways that are really harmful, not only to the individual, but also to the larger business community that can earn off this group of people and the larger society that, that needs to keep these folks healthy and active and engaged.
2: And now thinking on a bigger term. So, um, what about the countries, uh, when it comes to aging societies, which ones have adapted well and which ones do you think still need to really work on it?
1: Uh, it's a great question because no one has done it right. <laughs> um, everyone has done something good. Um, But a lot of the innovations that we've seen, and this is now research for me that's going back uh, seven years now, consistent research that we've found is that most of the really cool innovations that are happening are actually happening within local governments and within the business community. Um, These things eventually do bubble up to be national programs or nationally sold products and services. Very few have made it to a global um, a global uh, business model yet um, because a lot of this is tailored to local. I certainly think that Japan is proven to be a really fascinating testing ground. Um, but Japan still leans pretty much on old belief structures and this mm, idea that when older when people get to a certain age, they should step aside. Um, they should enjoy their later life. They should relax. They should be taken care of by their family. You know, the list kind of goes on and on, um, of the countries that are in the space right now, I would say the one that's come closest to really exceeding succeeding has been Germany, but it's really been mostly within the private sector where the success has been. Like I said, Porsche, Mercedes, uh, BMW have all made great strides, A number of smaller companies are doing great stuff, too. Um, The United States, though, you know, it's a great marketplace. I think you're seeing a lot of innovation happening here, for sure. Um, There's a great environment for startups. Um, uh, I mean, I can think of half a dozen right now that are blowing my mind, Um, whether it be, you know, get set up or... Uh, Idly or um, Italy rather, or um, Upside Home or Papa. There's a handful in the UK that that, that really you know sing to me. Uh, companies like On Hand, and then you have you know some innovators in places like the Netherlands. Uh, my friend Arjan, who started this company called Bureau Viftig, and it's an advertising agency that's grown into a media company for older populations you know, the emergence of this group of people as a market force is really no different than the emergence of teenagers during the last century. Businesses will lean to them. Society will adapt to them. um, But we have to get over our age bias first if we're really going to take advantage of it. And that's where we're starting to see some, some big changes, mostly within the marketplace.
2: This is such an interesting comparison uh, you made uh, with the teenagers, especially in the 18th century, where there wasn't really childhood, wasn't there? Because kids Correct. went on to work straight away, but then this class emerged.
1: Yeah, and, you know, it really happened in in large numbers because of the boomers, because of the post-war economy. Um, teenagers were, were something that... Uh, social scientists, that researchers, that educators were starting to identify at the end of the, uh, 1800s. Um, but it really wasn't until, you know, middle 1940s, late 1940s that, uh, a small handful, I mean, uh, two or three people said, yeah, this teenager thing is a thing. Um, the woman who started 17 magazine, the, the man who started the first marketing agency for, for young people. And they said, you know, this is a, this is a group that will be a force and they took risks and they, uh, tapped into the, to the market change and, and, you know, 17 magazine is, I mean, that's, that's legendary in this country. Um, the focus on the youth market, which is just, you know, <laughs> everything we do is focused on young people. That's a product of that period. Interestingly enough, though, during that period, it's the same time where the retirement industry really emerged too, because there, the, the social welfare systems that started with Bismarck and, and, other, and other European leaders in Japan as well, in the U.S., you know, created a a, a safety net uh, for people to to live into retirement, to have the ability to take time off. But the retirement, as we know today, you know, it really only existed for about thirty or maybe forty years, from let's say you know, nineteen sixty or so to nineteen ninety or so. You know, it was a really short-lived period of time. Um, most people historically have lived until have, have worked until they they die or they're they're simply no longer able to. So historically, you know, our, our word "old" it means when you can't work anymore, when you when you can't contribute anymore. Um, this focus on youth took that term of old, this idea of retirement took that idea of old and bastardized it and twisted it into something that 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 isn't reality. People are not old at 65. People are not old at 60. They are not old at 55. They are not old at 50 and they are certainly not old at 45 or 40. Yet we seem fixated on treating them as old as others and they're simply not. So we have to address, you know, these realities of today to meet, you know, to change the definitions of yesteryears or go back to the definitions that we once had.
2: So now thinking about the bigger picture, what would be your suggestions and also maybe predictions for the better future of humanity?
1: Well, it's I, I just wrote a piece um, for my newsletter, which you know people can sign up for at thesuperage.com that talks about this idea that the kids are not all right And you know, Children today are inheriting a mess. Um, Most of our social welfare systems were predicated for an old way of living. They were predicated on having more children and fewer older adults. Today we have fewer children and more older adults. The systems are imbalanced. Yet we have these institutionalized systems in place for both health and economic security that seem almost immovable. There are some that refer to this as a, as a gerontocracy that has developed here where, where older people run and control everything. Um, but older people have always had some degree of control over our governments, uh, our leadership. Um, in fact, this goes back to the the, the the Greeks and the Romans. The Romans even called their legislative body the Senate, which is – essentially means the, the 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 body of old men, um, mm-hmm. which is not too dissimilar from our Senate here in the United States today. But in order to make the shift, the transition that we need, older populations need to be part of the leadership and they need to bring younger people into the conversation today. Because this is the first time in the history of humanity where Generations are of equitable or nearly equal size in terms of percentage of the population, at least in countries that are just transitioning to the super age. For countries like Japan, there's already an imbalance. So, is it really fair that one young person is responsible for the pension and health care of two, three, or even four older people? It's not. So, this revision of the social contract, or at least Creating a new social compact where we agree to some principles of change is essential because if we don't do these things, it all falls apart. It just all falls apart. And here we know that by 2034 at least, our pension system, Social Security in the United States, it will not be funding pensions at the same rate that it had been. Um, So things start to come off the wheels pretty quickly here um if adjustments aren't made and working a few years that's gonna have to be part of the new deal um if not a lot longer younger people get this already um they expect to work longer um they expect to work different types of jobs they 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 understand more of this shift in responsibility away from the institution whether that be the state or or the company um, to the individual, young people, at least in the United States, have incredible savings rates, but that only gets them so far because they're not earning the same way that their parents and their grandparents did. So, yeah, they're saving a lot more at much higher rates, but they're not putting enough aside. They they can't get enough in place to buy a house or 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 even a car. So, we have to figure that out in order to keep the economy humming along. Um, we also, quite frankly, we have to address what, what is most commonly known as the longevity gap, um, you know, the space between what the wealthiest, healthiest group of people live versus the space that the, the lowest income, poorest health outcomes group of people live, um, which almost in, almost always tack to race, um, but also tack to issues like sexuality, gender, gender identity. We have to address these things head on. Um, we're better when we're when we're a bit more equal and this inequality that' that's that's emerged here in this country in Europe, especially um, these two places is is just untenable. Um, it can't keep up. And at some point, you know businesses that make products and services aren't going to have people to sell them to. A strong middle class is good for the economy at the end of the day. And right now we have too few with too much and too many with too little.
2: So, what discoveries along your journey to writing your book, The Super Age, surprised you the most?
1: Well, I mean, (laughs) writing a book in a pandemic is fascinating because it shines a light on things. I guess you could say that about any point of crisis, it shines a light on things that you would not have seen before. So, the issues of race, in particular, were shocking to me. The data about how um, a wealthy white woman in Washington DC can live 27 years longer than a poor black man, that doesn't seem fair to me, that that's not fair to me. Um, it, it, that was probably the most surprising and disheartening thing that I uncovered. And that's not my research. That's other, other research that's been done by by people that are far smarter than me. But the implications of what that means for us as a people is, is really troubling because it's consistent worldwide. It's not something that's limited to these shores of, of the U S the highest life expectancy in the world. Um, is in Monaco right now or in Hong Kong. Um, the lowest life expectancy, if I'm, if I'm not confusing countries here is Chad. Um, there's a nearly 50 year gap in life expectancy between those, those countries tied intimately to race intimately tied to income. Um, So, you know, it'd be one thing to say, oh, it's a, it's a problem that just exists in DC and DC should deal with DC's problem, but it's not just DC, it's New York and Chicago and it's global. So addressing equity is really important for us um, in the near and the long term. And, and part of the reason I mentioned this, um, you know, isn't just to be, you know, a social and economic justice warrior or supporter. It's that European populations, white populations, Asian populations, we're starting to contract. The only place in the world that will continue to grow uh, in terms of population is Africa and parts of Latin America. So when we consider, you know, the realities of what the future look like, if we're not more equitable, if we don't attack these things head on, it's like letting you know letting a leak in your roof continue. You know, eventually the house falls down. Do any of us really want that for our future? Um, do we really want to create a dystopia? I, I don't. Uh, I want a future that, that 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 looks prosperous. I want young people today to feel like they have a part in in this world, in this new era. I want the super age to be actually super. You know, I want it to be a period of great prosperity, and it will be if we make the right adjustments along the way. And every part of society has a role in this. I can't underline that enough here. Government, step up. Business, adjust. People, stop thinking you're entitled to retirement. Stop thinking that people are disposable just because they've gotten to a certain age. Shame on you. Um, We have a lot to do here. We can do it. We will do it. Um, We cannot afford to not. We have to meet the future where we're at.
2: Oh, very well put. So once you're reached all of your work goals and maybe decided to retire, what kind of retirement would that be? Do you think you would like to own your own space station or something?
1: <laughs> I don't think retirement is a reality. I think it was a fantasy that we bought into. It was a it was a valiant attempt by some very forward-thinking people—a way to, uh, you know, take into account shifting realities of social and economic norms. You know, you have to remember Bismarck and 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 the men and women who followed him. You know, they made these adjustments during the sec, You know, really, the second industrial revolution, where it was this massive movement of people around the world, this massive movement of people into factories, into cities, like these social protections were put in place to protect people. Um, They just didn't, they just didn't allow for a lot of flexibility. So, you know, I think when we think about our, our, our future, my future, I don't really anticipate stopping. I I like working. Um, Work gives me purpose. Work gives me um, a reason to get up in the morning. Uh, It doesn't necessarily have to be paid work. Um, It can be volunteer work, but I, i want to stay engaged and data shows the second that we stop being engaged we start getting sick data suggests consistently that when we stop working we lose our mental uh, abilities and we come become physically ill or at least more prone to become physically ill i don't want to force an error on myself i don't want to become sick just because i stop that that seems kind of counterintuitive i think that you know I want us to get to a place and I think I'm already making steps in my own life to get to a place where I can contribute to closing some of these longevity gaps. Um, in this country, the lowest life expectancy of any group of people is it's native and indigenous populations. Um, whether that be helping with my hands or with my pocketbook, you know, getting these populations uh, cleaner water, better access to education, you know, helping with with uh, drug and alcohol abuse treatments, um, you know, these are all things that we can do to narrow the gap. And narrowing the gap is, I mean, that's will probably be my my, my my life's goal. One of my life's goals is to narrow this gap because... Uh, it, you shouldn't get to live long just because you have money. That doesn't seem very fair.
2: That sounds like an excellent plan for later years, I <laughs> <say> older years. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, there's no, there's, old shouldn't be a bad word. I mean, <laughs> I, I think if you are able to live to an old age, you should applaud yourself. I mean, we should throw parties for you. And in fact, I don't know. I still I still have a because our, our attitudes towards age have always kind of been malleable, right? So there are times in history when old people are revered. There are times in history when older people are disposed of. You know, the Romans celebrated men when they reached their 50th birthday. Celebrations, big citywide celebrations. And today, you know, you turn 50 and you get a card with a grim reaper on it. get some black balloons. You say you're over the hill, one step closer to the grave. Uh, Come on. I mean, that's an achievement. Getting to 70, 80, 90, 100. You know, we assume the first person to live to 150 is alive today. Let's applaud these folks, especially if they can remain active and engaged in our economy and our society. That's an awesome achievement.
2: Yeah, exactly. We have to reclaim that word
1: reclaim it take it back.
2: Well we've taken up a lot of your time so can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project?
1: Well I in addition to my consultancy which is also this name the same name as the super age um, uh, in the next couple of weeks we'll be launching a subsidiary called Kiba, which is focused on inclusive design in the built environment. We're also in some negotiations to turn The Super Age into a documentary um, and maybe even a podcast. So there's a lot of great stuff on the horizon here. Um, This is just the beginning of some pretty amazing stuff.
2: That sounds so really exciting.
1: Yeah, it's great.
2: And and where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book?
1: Well, I appreciate that. You can find all of that information on thesuperage.com. Uh, I'm, of course, on all the social media channels at Bradley Sherman. That's S-C-H-U-R-M-A-N. And of course, at The Super Age. So look us up, uh, reach out. We'd be happy to talk to you and and share a bit more about what we do and how we can help you.
2: Well, thank you so much for joining me today and for this thought-provoking discussion.
1: Thanks so much. It was great being with you.